Hi, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest, and we're glad that you joined us today for this podcast. At Restoration, our mission is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So around here, that takes place in a lot of different ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open up God's word to explore the truth of his word and how we can apply it to our lives. And so we hope that you're able to do that with this message today. We would never want this to be a replacement for church. We would like for it to be a supplement for you as you explore deeper intimacy with Jesus. But if you don't have a church home, Join us any week at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Welcome to Restoration. So this morning we're piggybacking on Gavin's message from Matthew chapter 5. And I want to back up to move forward. So I just want to read uh, verses 17 through 20 because it's going to be the jumping off point for our passage today. If you look back at uh, verse 17... Jesus said this, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches other accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. So uh, I'm not going to re-preach this passage today. Gavin did such a great job of laying it out. If you missed it last week, go back and listen to the podcast this week. But I just want to point out that Jesus said this, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That he is the fulfillment, he fills up, he completes the law. And that's important because if you were with us as we walked through the book of Hebrews, uh, last year, excuse me, I think I just swallowed a fly. Um, uh, <laughs> that was kind of freaky. All right. So in the book of Hebrews, we talked about uh, that, that Jesus and the law were kind of at odds with each other, right? And so I think a lot of times we, we talk about the law, the Old Testament law, as if Jesus is now uh, the new sheriff in town and that the law no longer exists. That's not true at all. Jesus is actually giving weight, lending weight to the law. He says, I'm the fulfillment of it. So when you, you, you want to experience the law, you only experience the keeping of the law through Jesus. That means that when Jesus comes to the power of the Holy Spirit on the inside of your life, he's actually completing the law. He is writing the law on your heart. And then he, he really doubles down on it when he says, hey, uh, I tell you until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen by any means will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And he's saying, listen, I'm not saying the law doesn't matter. I'm saying it matters more. And then he finally, in verse 20, says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you're not gonna inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you know the rest of the story, Jesus was public enemy number one, and who was his biggest adversary? 
the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And here it seems to say that, that they're the most righteous and that your righteousness has to exceed theirs. But there's something bigger at play. Because in that culture, they would look at the Pharisees and teachers of the law as the creme de la creme of religiosity, right? They were the ones that were keeping it all. And he's like, hey, you gotta be better than that. You gotta be above that with regard to righteousness. So what that tells me is either you have to try harder or there's something different at play. So this morning, in the passage today, we're gonna see Jesus break down the letter of, law, of the law by contrasting it with the heart behind it. You have heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you. Now, you have heard it said, he doesn't say, for it is written, meaning he's not referring simply to the Ten Commandments as we walk into this passage. He's saying you've heard it said, meaning the Pharisees have told you this, the teachers of the law have told you this, but I say to you, and so he is coming not just as, as the Savior, the Messiah, he's coming as a new rabbi, and he's teaching something new, something that he would say is more complete. So what he will say, in effect, is this. The Pharisees interpret the law through the lens of action. I interpret the law through the lens of heart and motivation behind it. So we're gonna look at three of these today, and so uh, follow along with me, starting in verse 21. He says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while your adversary, do it, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So I wanna pause there so that we can unpack that. There's a lot there. So he starts out, Jesus is saying that committing murder and anger are the same. Does that make sense? That he says the act of committing murder and the act of being angry with a brother or sister is the same thing. Does that ring true to you? I think today in our culture we would go, no, no, wait a minute. I've never killed anybody. I think most of us in this room have never killed anybody. Hopefully, and, uh, uh, but, but at the end of the day, to say that murder is wrong, but anger is the same, I think we would take issue with that. Has anybody ever been angry with someone else? Has anybody ever been angry with the person sitting next to you? Yeah, I mean, 
I think, I think anger is something that we all deal with, right? Frustration, anger, and pain. Some of you, you're not gonna get past that. <laughs> Your spouse right now is like, don't you see? Don't pat me, don't pinch me. So the Pharisees would say of the law, as long as you don't commit the physical act of murder, you're good. I think that's a good baseline, right? So, so I think the Pharisees at the basic level, when he says you've heard us say don't commit murder, good idea. I think we would all agree with that, but Jesus takes it further. He says, if you're angry, or he says, if you say raka, which really means empty-headed, or if you call someone a fool, the word there in the Greek is moros, where we get the word moron. If you call someone a moron, guilty, you're subject to judgment. So this seems harsh to me. Like when I read this, does this bother anybody besides me? That Jesus is like, hey, you've heard it said, don't kill a brother. But I say if you're angry with them, if you call them names, if you devalue them in some way, you are subject to the same judgment. Jesus is driving towards something more in the spiritual life. It's not just what you do, it's the why behind it. And so it's a pretty low bar to say don't kill anybody, but the bar is raised when Jesus says this, people are not objects for your use, value relationships. Let me say that again. People are not objects for your use, value relationships. Remember, Jesus has already said what? Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So uh, the blessed life in the kingdom of heaven comes not just when you don't kill someone, but when you value them. How does that sit with you today? Because does anybody ever feel like you've had the right to be angry with someone? Sure. Has anybody made you so mad that you've called them an idiot, a moron, so uh, if you've ever seen uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, she constantly calls her husband, idiot. <laughs> I've picked up on that, and uh, I say it jokingly all the time. Ask Josh Agnew, and uh, uh, so I'll say that, and I'm, I'm really joking around, but I was really convicted as I was studying the passage this week that that Greek word moros means moron, and another way that we say it today is idiot. I gotta stop saying that. Jesus is not okay with that. And while it's a joke to me, maybe it's just not funny. Maybe there's something more at play that Jesus is working on all of us because he doesn't want just the physical act of murder to be this low bar in our lives, but everything else is permissible. And the blessed life comes when I'm living meek that strength under control, when I'm living merciful, which means that I am forgiving, when I'm living as a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper avoiding conflict, but peacemaker, moving toward reconciliation. 
That's when I value relationship. But look, then he takes it further and he says, if you remember someone has something against you and you're at the altar, he says, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. Okay, so what he's saying here is this is not about you being merciful and forgiving someone. It's about seeking reconciliation by seeking forgiveness from someone else. It's you coming and saying, hey, listen, will you forgive me for what I've done to you? That's hard. It's hard because a lot of us feel justified in our actions and it's hard for us to move forward toward reconciliation. Because in our minds, we're like, well, hey, if they wanna come to me, you know, whatever. Or we feel justified in the things that we've said or done. And Jesus is like, mm-mm, no, that's not okay. He says here, if you're going to offer your gift at the altar. So let me reframe that for you. I'm gonna define it as worship. Isn't it easy for us to show up here on a Sunday morning and get our praise on. Maybe you raise your hands as a sign of surrender. Maybe you carry the TV. I don't know how you worship, but uh, uh, at, at the end of the day, you, you, you come and you will lift your voices. You, you will lift your hands and worship. You may dance a little bit. You may, you know, if you're Sheila, you may shout a lot and say amen. But at the end of the day, worship in here that is not lived out, out there is really worthless. And what he's saying is, hey, you coming and offering your worship to me means very little if you're not gonna be reconciled out there. He said, so if, if you know somebody has something against you and you come in here and worship and it doesn't even occur to you that you need to be reconciled in that relationship, you're not gonna inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's not what this is about. A little bit later in Matthew 6, we're gonna find him and say, hey, listen, if you don't forgive, your heavenly father won't forgive you. So what he's saying is forgiveness is a huge deal and it goes both ways. So when we're talking about anger with a brother or sister, when we have a broken relationship, it is your responsibility to repair that relationship. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. You don't know what they've done to me. It doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't say, unless they've been really, really mean. Unless they've been really, really offensive. That's so subjective, right? And, and for everybody in the room, I know right now, even as I'm saying this, your heart is closing up because you are living in bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone or you feel justified in the way that you've treated somebody because of something they've done to you. And know this, this is not between you and me. This is between you and Jesus. And so in the, in the name of how close to Jesus can I get, you've got to make a determination. Because if you're not living in right relationship horizontally, you're not living in right relationship vertically. It's just a fact. And uh, you, you're not okay so don't convince yourself that you are. He says, be reconciled. 
at all costs. Uh, Romans 12, 18 says it this way, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible as far as it depends on who? You. You. This is about personal responsibility. Right? And so now he's taking this whole idea of murder and now he's just drilling down into it, right? He's saying, listen, if you're angry with the brother or sister, you're subject to judgment. If you've called them empty-headed or a moron, you're subject to judgment. And furthermore, if you are not in right relationship with them in any way, their fault, your fault doesn't matter. If you're not seeking to be reconciled, you are living under judgment. Thank you, Jesus. That's tough, right? Because I know right now, Many people in this room, you're going through a Rolodex of people that you are living in an unreconciled relationship. And you gotta make a choice. The question is, how close to Jesus do I wanna be? In the kingdom of God, man, I wanna be as close to Jesus as I can get. I don't wanna leave anything on the table. So, Value relationship. But value relationship with Jesus first. Because here's the thing, you will never be able to forgive, you'll never be able to offer forgiveness without Jesus. You realize that, right? That, that here's the theme of what we're gonna see is it is impossible to live the way Jesus is advocating here but in reality, what he's saying is, you can change your behavior, and that'll work some of the time, but until I come and invade your heart and change your heart, the motivation of your heart, you'll never get here. He's raising the bar and saying, hey, this is unattainable. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. But what we're gonna find as we go throughout the book of Matthew is, you were never meant to do this on your own. It is only through Jesus. And so what Jesus is driving here is that simply following the letter of the law is empty without the right heart posture. So this is why morality in our culture is a pretty low standard, right? I mean, today morality in our culture is down here. So you can, you can meet up to that pretty easily. And if that's the standard, we're all in deep, deep trouble. So I'm sure most people that you know have never killed anyone, but I'm also sure you know lots of miserable, angry, unforgiving people. And Jesus is always after your heart because he knows that when he has your heart, your actions will follow. Proverbs 4.23 puts it really well. Above all else, guard your heart for what? Everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart, both good and bad. So it's so important that you guard your heart. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said you should not, or you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So, (laughs) what? (laughs) Again, Jesus is one intense brother. He's coming on the scene and now he's standing on the side of a mountain and remember, this is really, he's the new Moses. He's on the side of a mountain laying out the law for them but he's reframing it, reinterpreting it for them and he's like, hey listen, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. What I'm saying is, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So show of hands, he's guilty. <laughs> Don't raise your hand. Uh, but <laughs> it's every person in the room. We're all adulterers. It's who we are naturally. So you can spend your entire life not committing the physical act of adultery which is extramarital sex with someone else's spouse. But here Jesus says that if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery. So I immediately thought of pornography here. Pornography, not COVID, is the pandemic of our age. Um, And the lie of porn is that it's not really hurting anyone. That's the lie of porn that it's behind the scenes and what I'm doing in in, in my own privacy is not hurting anyone. Jesus says here that it's the same as unfaithfulness, that you are giving away intimacy for momentary pleasure. And remember, Jesus has already said that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and those who are pure in heart are blessed and they inherit, inherit the kingdom of heaven. So here, Jesus is saying, don't give your intimacy away in any form, in any form. But here's where it gets weird. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. That is intense, but it is a common theme that Jesus talks about. I mean, he's taking these things to an extreme. If you look over in Matthew chapter 18, verses eight and nine, he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So here he adds the foot to the equation. He's an extremist, but this is not literal. Because if it were, we would be walking around with a lot of one-eyed people, right? A lot of, you know, handless people. (laughs) We walking around on crutches because we'd be missing the foot because all of us have issues in this area. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your right foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. So 
what is he actually saying? What he's implying here is if there are things that you watch or look at that are causing you to lust, get it out of your life. If there are things you're doing or places you go that cause you to lust, stop doing it. Stop going there. I mean, this seems logical, right? That it's input equals output. And so if the things you are viewing or if the places you go or if the things that you are putting your hands to are causing you to stumble, stop. But again, if you're doing it, in your own willpower, you're never gonna do it. You will never be successful in willing yourself to stop doing these things. And it's never been the point. But this seems logical, but we live in this hyper-sexualized culture, so it's literally everywhere, and it's been normalized, so our senses are dulled to it. I, I was talking with this young adult on Thursday night, and he was talking about his battle with pornography. And uh, he, he just said, man, I kept uh, trying to get rid of it, but it was just a struggle over and over. And so he went and got a phone that is just a phone. That hadn't been the case for a long time, right? A phone that's just a phone, how novel. That it doesn't have access to the internet. And he did that because he said, I don't trust myself that as long as I have access to the internet, I'm gonna continue to look at these things. I don't trust myself. I need to put safeguards in my life. So what he's saying is, that is him gouging out his eye. And for some of you, you're like, okay, pause. That's unrealistic. I need Google. And the question is, how far are you willing to go to follow Jesus? What steps are you actually willing to take to say, Jesus, you are the most important thing to me and I wanna make a covenant with my eyes. I wanna stop going to places that are causing me to fall into sin. I wanna stop putting my hands to things that are unhealthy in my life. <clears throat> Again, you'll never be able to solve the lust problem in your life apart from Jesus. I know for me, Jesus curbs my appetite for sin. It's only Jesus. It is not about your willpower. But again, Jesus is not driving at the letter of the law, but the posture of the heart. A life of worship is a life that is vigilant to cut anything out of my life that causes my heart to want something that ultimately dishonors God or devalues others. Yeah, it's so quiet in here this morning. I mean, th this is hard stuff, right? That, that Jesus is like taking what was already a pretty big bar and he's raising it. It's not about the physical act. It's about the posture of your heart. So if that wasn't enough, let's squirm a little bit more. Verse 31. It's been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. So 
Divorce in our nation today is probably about 50-50. There's a 50-50 shot, you're gonna make it. And I know that there are a lot of divorced people in this room who have remarried. And I think you could read this verse and not really understand what he's getting at. And, and the church has done an incredible job of shaming those who have divorced and remarried. So this all falls under the banner of God's grace. So if you've been divorced, would you please stick with me? Because the last thing we wanna do is shame you. There is grace. Like divorce, it's never God's plan, but when it happens, there's grace on the other side of it and God can use your story for his purposes and for his glory. But this part, this is not nearly an exhaustive teaching from Jesus. If you move over to Matthew 19, he gets into a little more uh, detail. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left for Galilee, went to the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that the beginning, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did, Jesus, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He doubles down on what he said in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you read between the lines in this passage, the Pharisees were concerned with the grounds for divorce. Jesus is concerned with the sanctity of marriage. So where they're like, hey, doesn't it require a certificate? What's permitted? What, what are the ways I can get out of this? They're always looking for loopholes. It's what happened in John chapter eight with the woman caught in adultery, right? They're like, hey, it says that we are permitted to stone her for what she's done. What do you say, Jesus? They're always saying, what am I permitted to do? Here's what they're saying. How close can I get to the line without going over? And Jesus is saying, wait a minute. He quotes Genesis 2, 24, when he says, hey, listen, there is a spiritual union. This is not a government idea. This is a God idea that when he joins people together, it is a one flesh relationship. It's something really mysterious that happens when people are bound together in the union of marriage. And so the Pharisees called Moses called for a certificate of divorce, a command, while Jesus called it a provision for their hearts, hard hearts. So Jesus takes divorce really seriously, so seriously that he calls remarriage adultery. So what's really going on here? So in these couple of verses, he's challenging actually our current view on marriage. So if we look today where marriage is 50-50, it's kind of optional, 
Jesus is saying here that only marital infidelity is a valid reason. And let me say, I would include physical abuse here. Um, but I think Jesus' point is this. Take your marriage vows seriously. Too many people get divorced in the name of, I don't love you anymore. Or, you don't meet my needs anymore. And so, I mean this respectfully. We are too quick to pull the plug when things don't go our way. And if that's happening in your marriage, man, we want to we wanna mourn with you. But the point is, for those who are married in this room, if this is your second marriage, make it your last one. If this is your third marriage, make it your last one. Commit today that whatever has happened in the past, God has got a grace, but go the distance. Because here's the thing, love's not a feeling. It's a commitment. Read 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us all we can choke down about love. All the characteristics of love. But here's what we know. Love is a choice. Love is hard. I know that when uh, Yvonne and I awake in the morning, she doesn't turn and, and doesn't look at me and go, oh. <laughs> I love you. Your hair. <laughs> Your breath. <laughs> If love was defined by how I feel all the time, we'd never make it. Because there are days I don't feel in love. There are days she doesn't feel in love. But love is a choice. And I've been very public. Uh, we should have been divorced a couple of times. But love is a choice. And I'm so grateful for your choice, Yvonne. And so, again... This is not banging on anybody for getting a divorce. But today, make the decision that if you've remarried, this is your last marriage. The reason so many people get divorced today is because it's an option and because it's used as a bargaining tool in conflict. So if you'll take it out of the vocabulary, it probably won't happen. So, are we okay? <laughs> yeah. So these are hard truths. These are hard truths. That Jesus is raising the bar, making it really difficult to live according to his elevated standard. Because, know this, based on his standard, I'm a murderer. Because I've been angry with others. I've discredited and devalued them. I've called them fools, morons, idiots. I've hurt others. I felt justified in doing so with no perceived need for reconciliation. How about you? Based on his standard, I'm an adulterer. And I have infidelity in my past, but I've also looked and lusted, which is equally as offensive. And I've kept provision for this to persist by not consistently keeping standards on what I watch, what I do, where I go. How about you? Do you struggle with that? So this is where the gospel meets us all. So if I say this every week for the rest of my life, 
every Sunday if you hear it for the rest of your life? We all need to hear it. You're broken. You're broken. Following Jesus is not about no longer being broken. Following Jesus is that in your brokenness, he meets you in the middle of your need. It's because you're broken that you need Jesus. Jesus is not, again, he's not the retrofit to make your life a little more compelling. He's not your retrofit so you have some place to go on Sunday mornings. No, in your brokenness, you couldn't get to God. You need Jesus. And this is where the gospel meets us all. Jesus was raising the bar because he knew you could never live up to his newly imposed standards. And are you ready? You were never meant to. You could not live up to his standards on your best day. And if you were with us during Hebrews, we said this a lot. The law was simply a placeholder for Jesus. Jesus, the full embodiment of the law, invites us into the life that we were meant to live. And the essence of the gospel is when you couldn't, he did. When you couldn't on your best day, he did. Jesus died and through his death, he made himself accessible to you and me that everyone who embraces Jesus gets a new heart. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he's what? He's new. He is new. I, I think about how Jesus fulfilled this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36 when he says I will sprinkle clean water on you this is God talking you will be clean he's prophesying over the nation of Israel but receive this as he was actually prophesying over you and me this he's he's alluding to Jesus here I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idolatry. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you were never meant to do it. So I'm gonna replace your heart with a heart of flesh. I'm gonna put my spirit in you because it's only by the spirit of God you can live the life that God has called you to live. It's never been about you. It is about Jesus in you. So the reason you're failing in unforgiveness, the reason you're failing in lust, it's not because you don't have enough willpower, but because you have not fully surrendered your heart to Jesus. That's where it begins. I popped into DNA this morning and a couple who's only been here a couple of times said, hey, the reason we're here was because of two words, secret place. We knew immediately this is where we needed to be. For you and me, if the battle's just simply taking place out there in daily life, you're, you're failing. Because the battle is actually taking place in the secret place with Jesus. 
the battle is when I willingly lay down my agenda for his agenda. When I'm coming saying, Jesus, I, I, don't, I don't need to try harder. I need to receive everything you want to give me. Because as he transforms my heart, my actions follow. As I guard my heart or when I actually allow Jesus to guard my heart, new things are flowing out of my life. This is not about behavior modification, but about inviting Jesus into the broken places and allowing him to speak truth where you're believing lies and to bring healing for your brokenness. This morning, it's just another call. Jesus is inviting the Israelites. He's inviting you and me into a life of followership, into a life where he is our highest pursuit. Because when he has our heart, everything else flows from that.